And um, I'm going to be reading from Esther 1 and 2, but it'll be the abridged version. So um, that means I'll be skipping some verses along the way. I think the story will still make sense this way. I've taken a bit of detail. What that does is it leaves you opportunity this week to read the whole thing in detail yourself. And um, if you get our communications, you've already been encouraged to look at the Bible Project um, video on summarizing Esther. I think it's excellent stuff. And if you don't get our mailings, just Google Bible Project Esther and you'll definitely get it. So really good stuff. By the way, the Bible Project material, if you're ever studying any book of the Bible and you want to know what the whole book talks about, go to their material. It's excellent summaries. All right, Esther 1 and 2. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, he gave, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace. He gave it for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him. Their names are Mehumen, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Agatha, Zethar, and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. He said, therefore, if it pleases, or his, his attendant said, therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of, the, of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then, when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all the land, throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what, happened to, what was happening to her. And when the turn came for Esther, the young woman that Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. Now, the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. 
He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. And during the time that Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. This is the word of the Lord. such a long reading, I'm thirsty already. So as I wrote somewhere, there's a lot going on in the book of Esther, and I encourage you to, to read through the entire story, um, as well as look at the Bible Project summary, just because the story is meant to be, of course, seen in its totality. All right, so today we are introducing Esther. This is a four-part series. If you're not regularly here, it will be available online. Or if you hear the first one and you definitely don't want to hear the rest, you can get, say, well, good, at least I don't have to hear the rest of that series. So what we're going to look at today, I'm, I'm going, I want to introduce some of the, the big picture of what's going on in the book of Esther. So we'll look at many issues that pop up and a few features of how it's put together. I know that's not particularly helpful, but that's what we're doing. So we're going to start with the issue of empire and power. And what I want you to notice with all these issues, and I'll point it out, is that the experience of what's going on in the book of Esther, the culture that it happens in, has a whole lot of real close similarities with the world that we live in. Esther is one of the easiest books to apply because what was going on there is what's going on all around us right here. For example, issues of empire and power, right? Why do kings go to war? For power, to expand their empire. We live in the Western world, in North America, and in the northern part of North America, right? We have empire kind of power. That's who we are in the, in the first world, as it's sometimes called, right? So this is what happened during the reign of, or the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Kush. And Kush, by the way, is, is below Egypt. In other words, the entire known world at that time, right? We're going to see later that Mordecai actually got brought into this story by the Babylonians, right? Before them were the Assyrians, after them are the Medes and Persians who are ruling now, and after them are the Romans who we talk about in the, in the New Testament. And so time after time, the Bible is set in a place where, and there was Egypt before that, if I may say, right? Time after time, the Bible is set in a place where there's, there's an empire controlling things, and God's people are looking for a place of shalom in the midst of that, Right? And as we live in this world today, we need to recognize that this empire and power kind of a thing that goes on all around us, whether in politics or business or other aspects of our life, right, we are called to find a place of peace, shalom, within that. First feature is the feature of festivals. There were two or three or four already in this, these two chapters that I read, depending on how you count your festivals. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom, and the splendor of his, and the glory of his majesty. And when these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days. So for 180 days, he shows off how rich he is, right? And then that wasn't enough, so he had a seven-day banquet after that to invite some people in to see how rich and powerful he is, right? You're, you're getting a feel for this King Xerxes guy just as you see the beginning. Notice that 
this festival, showing off the power of King Xerxes, parallels at the very end of the story the Feast of Purim, which is the celebration of the Jews. It's a shalom feast. Well, this is an empire feast, right? And you'll see as we go through this that most of the stuff that happens at the beginning gets undone and backwards at the end, and so there's a whole beautiful structure to this. We'll get into that as we go along in the next couple of weeks. The issue of excess. Tell me what this sounds like in our world. Wine was served in goblets of gold. That might not be that relevant. Each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, guests, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions. What's that called in our world? Open bar or an all-inclusive, right? That's what we do. We go down south to an all-inclusive. There's a parallel in the world that is described here in the world in which we live. We understand this thing. The issue of objectifying women. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, that means drunk, by the way, he commanded the seven eunuchs, and I left other names because I can't actually pronounce them anyways, to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown. And possibly other things in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. This was simple objectification. A number of months ago, Pastor Peter did a message on pornography, right? This is basically high-level pornography in his setting. It's a reality in our world. It's a reality talked about in this passage. The issue of dysfunctional relationships. So... Queen Vashti's asked to come, as you likely remember, because I just read it, she says no, to which we're all going, well, that was a good answer. Good work, right? Why would you do this? And then the king talks to his advisors, right? So instead of actually talking with his wife, he talks to his advisors. That's called a triangle. That's a horrible, dysfunctional relationship. Right? According to the law, he asked his advisors, what must be done to Queen Vashti? She has not obeyed the command of the king, um, that King Xerxes, sorry, the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. So receiving this command and saying no to it doesn't become a conversation between them. You know, I asked you to come, and she says, yeah, but that was a horrible request, so I said no to it. Let's work this out. And then he says, oh, yeah, right, that was a horrible request. I'm sorry. And she says, okay, you're forgiven. That would be a healthy way to deal with that. He goes to his advisors and looks for a law to manage this. Now, granted, in this culture, this king, his queen was, was a possession, right? I'm not encouraging that in any way, shape, or form. I'm just stating how the historical fact would sit there. But nonetheless, the dysfunction of how they process this, right, is on display. Probably all of you have met and functioned in dysfunctional relationships as well, right? That's the relevance here. All of us struggle with these kinds of challenging things. And then the issue of replacement people. Also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. That's also called cancel culture. You've heard of cancel culture, right? I don't like what you do. I don't like the way you think. I'm deleting you from Facebook or whatever other connection that I have with you. Just in case that's not abundantly clear, Church, Jesus following, is about anything but cancel culture. Our task is to hang on to people 
even when we see differences, have disagreements, even find something that they do repulsive, our job is to love them because they are our neighbors, right? And so this whole method of going, yeah, I didn't like what you do. I'm not even going to talk to you about it. I'm just going to wipe you out, right? It's a great example of exactly what not to do when you're interacting with other people. That back one's flashing, and I'm going to have a seizure if I keep looking at it, so I'm going to read over here, okay? <laughs> Issues of replacement people. So also let the king give a royal position to someone who is better than she, right? We always want to replace somebody with somebody better. We always want to improve on the people around us. You know what our real task is as followers of Jesus? To let Jesus work on improving us. So if you want to re improve your relationship with the most difficult person in your life, work on you. Work on you. Right? So again, there's lots of great examples. Basically, all these issues are great examples of how not to live um, that are really relevant in our world. And then the issue of control. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. Really, is that how that works? If you want respect from your wife, get the king to make a rule that she has to respect you? Just not sure that's respect, folks. Right? The Jesus way of gaining respect is not, let's make a rule that says you must obey or submit or you must do this or you must do that. The Jesus way is to lay down your life for the other person. Right? That's Ephesians 5. Love is first submitting to the other person, first loving the other person, first trying to outlove the other person, and in that way, receiving respect in humility instead of trying to produce or force that kind of respect. The king, again, didn't want to talk to her in the first place, even though his suggestion was horrible. Writes her off, right, and then makes a rule on behalf of all of his supporters that basically rules that you will now respect each other. I don't know too many people who actually respect. They may show respect, but people don't actually respect if it's simply a law of the land. And the issue of narcissism. Narcissism, by the way, is basically everything's about me. Everything focuses on me. What goes on around here is about me. And King Xerxes is a great example of narcissism. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. He's basically saying, let's look for the person who pleases me most. And on the way, let's see how many people can please me first, and then we'll pick the one who pleases me most because there's nothing more important in life than that I feel pleasure. That's actually our world, by the way. That's actually what you're taught if you watch television and advertisements and all that kind of stuff. It's really about you not having any discomfort. It's about you having pleasure. Our world's trying to produce as many narcissists as it can, right? The challenge really becomes when narcissists get in power, you may be aware that there's lots of people in my role in vast empire-type churches right, that are struggling basically with narcissism because it becomes this power thing where everybody's looking at them and, and that's intoxicating and it's dangerous and then they fall from grace, right? This happens in politics as well. You can probably name your own narcissist who's been in power in, in our world or is in power in our world, right? And since we have different political positions, I won't name one. You can pick your own. It's easy to find. This idea that I have power, it's all about me, and I want my stuff to happen, and I'm going to use my power to get it. And that's what's going on here. That's what's illustrated here, and it parallels really closely how things happen in our world right now as well. And then the issue of inequality, kind of 
turning the corner here. Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Mordecai and Esther are basically Jewish people on a reservation in the land of the Medes and the Persians, right? This has been happening throughout history where a conquering people comes in and puts down and enslaves, right, and makes serious inequality for whichever people that they've run into. That's our world. We haven't, right, come out the other side and made all things equal for all people. That's the world that we're living here, and those dynamics, right, interact with each other. Then the issue of assimilation. So this is kind of a spoiler alert on the whole story of Esther. Because Esther's kind of a hero in the Bible, right? Women are taught to think and be like Esther because Esther was told by Mordecai at the key moment in the story, maybe you were put in this position for such a time as this. Maybe you were called to this place for such a time as this, right? But please don't encourage people to be like Esther except for that one line that she said. Because how did she get to the position of power? It goes like this. In the evening, she would go there to the king, and in the morning, return to another part of the harem to the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. So, if you know what happens from evening to morning, that isn't sleep, and you know what a concubine is, you know that this Jewish young woman rose to power, right, through more than just her appearance of physical beauty. That's all I'm going to say that. If you need more explanation, come to me afterwards and I'll give you the details. All right? So, one of the tough and strange things about the book of Esther is it is indeed a story of, of God's people being used with power to overturn this empire thing, all the issues that I'm describing, right? We also are called into this world to... Um, undermine empire and bring shalom and peace and equality for everyone to deal with all the issues that we're seeing in the book of Esther, but hopefully not necessarily through this sort of requirement. Mordecai and Esther throughout this book break a lot of rules of their religion, right? And that's one of the things we've got to kind of sit in and struggle with. God uses people not just because they're perfect, thankful for all of us, right? But God uses people even in kind of messy ways when they're going beyond the rules, right? Were they trusting God completely when they did this? There's no, by the way, there's no mention of God in this entire book. So there's no time for sure when God says, hey, Esther, you should do this. But we sense that in spite of, and I think that's true of most Bible stories, in spite of people's messiness and brokenness and bad decisions and places they went where they probably shouldn't have, God finds a way to use them to bring about his conclusion. The Feast of Purim does come. The festival and the saving of the Jews does happen in the end. How far do we need to be assimilated, included, participatory in our culture, right, is an ongoing question. I can't simply answer it for you. Do this and don't do that is not how this works. It's pay attention. Sometimes God calls us to go a place where you're going, I don't know how I should be there. And other times God says, no, no, just, just, don't, just don't go there. That's not for you. And we need to listen and understand and deal with and struggle with that question together. How far are we supposed to be involved in our culture and how far do we stay away? And then this feature of reversals, right? So the beginning feast is for Xerxes, the end feast is for the Jews, and we're going to see a whole bunch of those along the way. And again, if you watch the Bible Project video, you'll see them all uh, laid out nicely before you. 
Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, so he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So right away in the first two chapters, we get a picture of what's going to happen is that instead of, um, instead of the Medes and the Persians and Xerxes' people's power, their empire, God's going to find a way to turn that on its head and bring about his kingdom. And that, of course, is exactly who Jesus is. Jesus is somebody who came during the Roman Empire, right, who humbled himself, who walked the journey, who was not put on, impaled on a stake like happens in this story, but who was put on a cross. And by that humble act, made a whole new kingdom of peace, right? And what I want you to notice again as we look at all the issues that are happening in the book of Esther is that Jesus' kingdom is not a kingdom of a different power that's going to overpower those ones with the same kind of power. Jesus' kingdom is about shalom. It's about humility. It's about sacrifice, right? One of the assimilation questions we need to continually ask is, are we as followers of Jesus supposed to take the same kind of power that other people are using and, and now in the name of Christ use that power? Or are we called to the Jesus way, which is saying, no, we are going to love. We are going to be humble. We are going to use our minds. We are going to interact. We're going to play along in culture. But our main message is love and forgiveness and healing, not power that overpowers other powers, right? Look at history. You have the Egyptians, you have the, Babylon, or the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians, the Romans, the Greeks. That's probably not in the right order, right? You have the Roman Catholic Church and, and the popes in the Middle Ages, right? You have superpowers all the way up to today. All of those things are about power and control and all the things that are talked about that are the issues in this story. And we need to continue to ask ourselves, what does it really mean to be Jesus' people in the midst of all that? How do we go about being in a situation like Esther's and understanding, wow, we need to find our way. We need to trust God through all of this. Well, here's some advice from Jesus on that. Always a good source. He says to his disciples as he's sending them out, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Got to give credit. My friend Marty from Bema is the one who made this connection for me, so giving him credit. So the book of Esther is people in a very tough circumstance in a very messy world, that'd be us, wondering how do we do this? And when Jesus told his disciples, you're going out in the same sort of a setting, he told them, be as shrewd as snakes. It's interesting advice. Be crafty. Be sneaky wise, right? Be thoughtful about creative ways that you can work through this kind of a thing. But at the same time, be as gentle as doves, as innocent as doves. Doves barely know how to get out of the way of a car, right? Doves are kind of dopey calm. They're relaxed. They're humble to a fault. Shrewd as snakes, innocent as doves, which leaves you going, which one is it? And how exactly do I do that? Right? And I suggest that's why Jesus always calls us into community. You can believe in Jesus all by yourself. You can't follow Jesus without other people because you need to have these conversations. What does that look like for me? I'm in, I'm in this circumstance, you can say. I got this going on at work. 
what do I say? Is this where I stand up and say, hey, no, I can't do that, that's wrong? Or is this where I, I, I bend a bit and say, I need to walk a little ways on this journey before I make a decision because this might be a way that God's going to use me, right? So obviously I'm not telling you exactly what to do in all circumstances, how could I? I'm telling you that this journey of focusing on what God's at work doing and how we can engage with him requires that we pay attention, that we get engaged, that we wonder, yeah, what is my calling in this moment? And that we have people around us who can pray for us and support us, advise us and question us and guide us along the way. That's the Jesus way in this. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the gift of your love and your sacrifice and your example. We thank you for your forgiveness for us. And we pray that you would also lead us to be people who enter into areas of brokenness with a heart of love and a passion to see forgiveness and reconciliation happen. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, that we would have um, your wisdom to guide us when we're in difficult circumstances and need to know how far in we can go. We also pray, Lord, for a deep sense of humility that we may be like doves, that we may be innocent, that we may be um, soft and kind and gentle. And for all this, Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to fill us and guide us, to shape us, and to carry us forward. And so we pray, bless us on our way and connect us with each other on this journey. We pray in your holy name. Amen.